So just like we're trying to be, you know, more funky, right? When we're doing, I like that, he used that word, funky, um, uh, when we're doing the sermons. You know, preaching is also interactive, right? So if I say something you like, you can go, come on, come on, preach. Come on, you can do that, okay? I preached a few weeks ago at the Hill. We have a church plant that we're working with in Roanoke. And when I preach there, I mean, I get lots of feedback. It's great. Like, preach, come on, come on, bring it, bring it. I love it. So, so just know, you can, you can comment. You know, preaching can be interactive. Just saying. Just, yeah, thank you. There we go. Yeah, yeah, he's with me. There it is. Okay. Uh, well, glad you're with us. So my name is Brett Johnson. I'm the lead guy here. And uh, you may not know this, but I have five children, okay? So if you are spend any time here, you will hear them because they're, you know, I'm not sure where they get it from, but they're quite loud. Um, very relational. Again, I'm not sure where that all comes from, but you'll see my kids around and about. And I, and, and I spend a lot of time around children, right? So I'm down at the playground. I'm down at soccer games. And if you spend any time around kids, right? Kids say some of the strangest things, right? They say weird things, all sorts of weird pronunciations of things, all sorts of odd questions, right? And, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie A Christmas Story. You guys ever seen that little Ralphie? You know what I'm talking about? It's a, kind of an older movie. We, we used to watch it growing up, right? And there's the one scene that he's like helping the dad change the tire. We remember the scene where he has all the like the lug nuts in the thing and he trips and he says something, right? I can't say what he says, but he says something and his, and his dad goes, <gasps> you know, and then he goes inside and he whispers in his mom's ear and, and she goes, he said what? Right? And then the mom goes to the kid. This is, this is kind of where this is. I'm, I have a point. I promise. He goes to the, she goes to the kid and she goes, where did you hear that? And, and what he says in his head is, I must have heard my old man say that, you know, more times than I could count. But I couldn't say that because I'd get a whooping. So I, you know, I had to blame it on the first person I could think of, right? I say all that to say this. If you follow an angry kid home, what do you find? You usually find angry parents, right? Children are kind of ambassadors and portraits of what's going on in their world around them. And so in John chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5, because we're going to be looking at uh, Jesus, and Jesus basically, we're following him home, if you will, to see why it is Jesus does the things that he does. He gets questioned here in our text this morning. And so we're going to look at that. So uh, before I pray for us, um, I'm going to set the stage. Last week, Jesse preached the end of John chapter 4, which is actually really interesting because we're going to look at, there was a healing in John 4 where a man sought Jesus out so that his son could be healed. This week, we have another healing, but the circumstances are very different. The story is not similar at all for what happens. And so it's an interesting contrast coming off of the text last week where you had this guy where the, the faith of the man wanting the healing of his son was kind of a major part of the story. This week, that's not like, it's not similar at all. The faith of the person being healed kind of has nothing to do with what we look at today, which is very interesting. This is part of the beauty of preaching the scriptures. We do a thing called expositional preaching here, which means we preach through books of the Bible. We take passages from the, the Bible and let them determine what we preach. And we do that because often when you open the Bible, you find a lot of things different than what you expect, right? God does unexpected things. And even stories you've read before, when you reread them, you're like, oh yeah, huh, that's, that's different than I remember. So let me pray for us and we'll dive into John chapter five. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray 
that you would meet us here this morning. Lord, we gather not because we simply like to gather, but because we believe that you gather with us, that you meet with us, that your word is alive and active and it does things. It changes things. So Lord, as we spend time in your living word, would it work in us, on us, and through us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in John 5. And Jesus has just finished a little kind of campaign where he's been gallivanting the uh, countryside, right? We had the, the wedding of Cana where he made wine into water. The last miracle happened in Cana as well. And now we're going to see Jesus is heading back to the big city of Jerusalem here in uh, chapter 5. Let me read for us uh, through verse 9, and we'll, we'll pause and kind of unpack from there. So this is John 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. We'll pause there. Okay, so we have this kind of odd story. This is one of the beautiful things about the life of Jesus is there's all these really odd little tales that we find that are revealing about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And so what we see here is there's this pool in Jerusalem, as it's called, you know, the pool of Bethesda, right? Uh, And so there's this pool where there are all these people, there's a multitude of invalids who are laying by the edge of the pool. And there's this kind of this myth and this urban legend that if the pool is stirred up and you can get to the pool before everyone else gets to the pool, if you're the first one in, if you're the first one to dip your toe in the water, you can be healed. So this is, this is why this man has found his way. We're not told how he gets to the poolside, but that's why he's at the poolside. That's why these people are there. They want healing from these these stirred waters, this kind of urban legend, this kind of myth that's there. We're we're not really told much about this myth. So you have Jesus who who walks through this crowd of invalids is what the text calls him, right? He walks through this crowd and he goes specifically to this guy. And he asks him a very ridiculous question, a very ridiculous question. This guy's, he knows that the guy's been there a long time. He's been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus has the audacity to walk up to him and say to him, hey, guy who's laying by the side of a pool trying to find healing, do you want to be healed, right? So this is the most no-duh question of all time, right? It's like walking up to someone who's in line at McDonald's and saying, hey, um, you eat at McDonald's? Well, yeah, they're in line, right? The guy's at the pool to be healed, and Jesus has the audacity to ask him a very obvious question, right? He says, do you want to be healed? Now, here's the crazy thing. How does the guy respond? Look at your text. He actually doesn't answer. He doesn't say yes. He goes, well, there's this pool, 
And if I could just get to the pool, I could be healed. But nobody will take me into the water. So he actually never responds to Jesus' question. He says, look, basically, I am here and I'm looking for healing from this pool. And Jesus himself, if we've been tracking with the story to this point, has established he is the person who has the ability to bring healing and to bring life. He is standing before this man, ask the man if he wants to be healed. The man actually doesn't say yes, but look what Jesus does. I want you to note how there is no mention of this man's faith, right? This man doesn't have great faith. This man didn't seek Jesus out. This man isn't asking for Jesus. This man doesn't know Jesus' name. This man knows nothing about Jesus. Frankly, he seems a little disinterested. When we see this, it seems like maybe he's more interested in Jesus' ability to drag him to the edge of the pool than he is in Jesus himself. But look what Jesus does, verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Man, crazy. So he gets up. So, so what we need to see thus far is that Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, hear me, everywhere, anywhere, Jesus shows up. He always brings life. He always brings life. He cannot help himself. He is the source and the author of life. From the very beginning of this book, he says, right, the word was with God and the word was God and nothing that was made was made except through this word who is made flesh, who we know is Jesus the Christ. And so everywhere he shows up, he brings life, even when this guy isn't asking. He didn't say, oh, heal me, heal me, man. He just said, no, I'm trying to get in this water. And Jesus says, hey, man, get up, you're healed. And so he heals them. Jesus does this. And we ask the question, why does he do this? Which is really going to get into our whole, this whole chapter is unpacking this illustration. This first part, this story at the pool is the illustration Jesus used. And then, so we're going to see this morning is an illustration, an explanation, and a warning, right? An illustration, an explanation, and a warning. So the illustration we see is that Jesus brings life. Well, what's the result of that? Let's, let's keep reading here in verse 10. Now, we saw that it says, now that day was the Sabbath, an important detail. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man? who said to you, take up your bed and walk. Look at verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him and the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not because only he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We'll pause right there. So when Jesus comes 
Two things happen. Jesus shows up. The first thing that happens is Jesus brings life. He brings life to this man's paralyzed legs. He brings life. That's what Jesus does. So that's result number one of when Jesus shows up. But the second result of when Jesus shows up is he disrupts the system. He disrupts things. Right? You have these, these people who are there. So, he, so get this. You hear about a healing. Someone shows up and says, oh man, you'll never hear, believe what happened. This guy, he'd been paralyzed 38 years. He got healed. How do you respond? How would you respond? I know how I respond often when I hear stuff like that. And I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. This will tell you a little bit about, you know, some of my baggage. We've got to work through. It's usually kind of like eye roll. Really? Like who, who was this guy? Like, oh, it's that guy that, you know, we, we see every week downtown. <sighs> Seriously? Like, how? How did that happen? Was it on TV? Did they film it? You sure it wasn't special effects? Like, like we hear of these things, and often there's a cynicism in us of like, okay, wh- wh- what happened? Right? Wh- why did this happen? We often have a cynical approach, even when life comes. We do not like to be disrupted. We do not like when we see our system of things being disrupted. I even think this guy at the pool, he wants, he has his whole thing worked out. He knows if he can just get in the pool, that it'll go his way. He just needs to get in the water. But Jesus is not caught up in what that guy thinks is going to bring him life. Jesus is not caught up in in what the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders think are going to bring life. They are frustrated that Jesus has brought life because their way of doing things is at stake. Their way of doing and getting and functioning is going to be disrupted. And Jesus is putting a monkey wrench in their system. Hear me, when Jesus shows up and when Jesus brings life, you better be assured it's disruptive. When you believe upon Christ, like we had this whole conversation about John, about being born again, that when we believe upon Jesus, be assured everything else changes, right? It disrupts our little systems and our little structures of the ways we think things can be. The person who heals, the person who brings life, the source of life, Jesus himself, we encounter him. And what often happens is people don't want to hear it because it frustrates their agenda. Man, how often are we missing what God is doing right in front of us because it's a disruption to our plans? The beautiful news of the gospel is a disruption by design. You cannot continue on your present course when you meet the king of life. So, we have this illustration. We have this weird kind of picture. This guy's healed. It almost feels like Jesus kind of forces it on him. Like, all right, hey, man, get up. You good. Get on out of here. And he's like, oh, oh, look at that. Okay. All right. I don't need to pull anymore. Please, I'm out. You know? So life happens. His legs now have life. But when that happens, the religious authorities are mad. They're frustrated. So when Jesus comes, he brings life and he brings disruption. So that's the illustration. So we have this picture of like, okay, this healing happens at a pool. We should be hearing this going like, man, that's really great. But now we have this tension where basically they're saying to Jesus, why are you doing this? Like, what is your problem? You cannot heal on the Sabbath, man. You're breaking the rules. 
And what does Jesus say? So this is what Jesus says. Verse 9, he, we get his explanation. So we have our illustration, the healing at the pool, and now we get our explanation in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We'll pause right there. We'll get into the second half of this in a second. They're basically saying, what's your problem, man? Why are you doing this? And Jesus' response is, I can only do what I see my father doing. Hear me, church. The beautiful news, the good news of the gospel is not that you get sin forgiveness, right? It's not that God just cleans you. The beautiful epicenter of the gospel is right here. The beautiful news of the gospel is that Jesus takes away your sin. He takes it away so that you can have union to the living God, so that you can have relationship with the God of life. That is the beauty of the gospel. And what Jesus is saying is, is I can only do what I see my father doing. That when you have been bound to the God who lives, when you've been bound to the Holy One of Israel, when you have been bound to the living God, you are changed and everything looks different and we become a people who can only do as we see our Father doing. You hear me? That the gospel is not just, he, he kind of takes care of your legs and lets you go off. This story is an interesting one. He healed this man's leg. This man has bigger problems than paralysis, as do we. Often we think, if he could just deal with my biggest problem, I have this big debt that I need to have paid, if I could just have that taken care of, I'd be good to go. You know, I've got these physical ailments, if I could just have this taken care of, man, my life would be fine. And what Jesus is saying is like, look, that's not the biggest discussion we need to have. We, we, we were just having a discussion about like the healing of legs, and where did Jesus take this? He took it to a whole other level. He starts talking about the God in heaven whom he is connected to, whom he now can only do what he sees the Father doing. Hear me, church. We're a people who are connected to the living God. The mission and life of Jesus was really about one thing. When you say, what does life with God look like? Jesus is the embodiment of what it means to be bound to the living God. So that when he's walking the earth, people are like, oh, 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 that, that's what God does. 
He's, he's, not, he's not caught up with a bunch of rules. He's, he's not caught up with just kind of uh, playing the game and, and fulfilling the traditions and just doing good stuff. No, no, we see him showing up, bringing life, and everywhere he shows up, everything gets disrupted constantly, right? And how different this is from what we would expect to be these quiet, little, meek, little Christians who kind of just walk through life and, and just kind of agree with the narrative where it's like, no, no, if we are following God's narrative, it's a confrontation to the narratives of this world. Wherever Jesus shows up, because he's bound to the Father, he is connected to the Father. He has this vibrant, alive connectivity to the Father. Because of that, everywhere he goes, he brings life and he brings disruption. So, because he's bound to the Father, he kind of gives us three things that result from him being bound to the Father. Obviously, we talked about those first two results in that first story, but he gives three specific things in this next section. He does three things because he's connected to the Father. The first is Jesus gives judgment. We love this one. Jesus gives judgment. Here's the thing. We, people keep trying to do this. They, they, they try and commandeer the Bible, and they try and cut out anything hard and just say, look, God is love. That's a, that's a quote from the scriptures. God is love, right? Actually, it's from 1 John, same author. God is love. That is true. And what we want to do is we want to, we want to try and just spackle over everything in Scripture with this man-defined definition of what love is. It's like, it just means we just agree and affirm everybody. Jesus will have nothing to do with this kind of love. Jesus is so loving and so good. He's willing to stand before men and say, you are going to die if you keep living for swimming pools to heal you. He is a God who shows up and says, you need connectivity to the living God. You need life in him. He is a God who says there's a, such a thing as judgment. There, there's something coming called judgment that all of us will have to face that we have bigger problems than health problems. We have bigger problems than, than financial problems. Our big problem is that we are separated because of our sin from the living God, and we are walking in death, this text tells us. And so there's a judgment that's coming. And it's unloving for us as people who believe what God says to not talk about the fact that there's going to come a day where you and me are going to have to stand and answer for the way that we've lived. And yet that's exactly what Jesus has been given authority to do from his father. Again, this is why we preach the Bible, right? Is this what we think we're going to find when we think, huh, what are the things that result from being connected to the living God that Jesus does because he's connected to, the, to God the Father? Well, he, he drops it on us. First thing he does is he judges. This is a unique role that Jesus himself has. You don't get to be the judge. Jesus is the judge. Second thing that he does that he, because he's connected to the living God is he gives life. We talked about that. Look, life in this first part looked like putting life in this guy's legs. So when he says that he can preach to those who are dead and they come alive, what does he mean? He goes, well, it's kind of like me speaking to legs that don't work and them coming alive. Oh, like you can do that kind of stuff? Amen. Look at verse 25. Let's read the second part of this section. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. Pause right there. Man, Jesus isn't playing around. So he says, I can only do what I see my father doing. When you think about the life and the ministry of Jesus, you can put that as a subtext in the life of Jesus. He can only do what he sees his father doing. He is sent on a mission from God the Father and can only do what God has sent him to do. The first thing that we hear about here is we hear about judgment. The second thing we hear about is that he gives life, right? He gives life to those who hear, right? Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. When is this happening? Well, we see verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. So here's what I want to say about that. Because it's a, it's a valid question. Well, how does this life work? And this is what he is laying out in all of John. He's, he, he has said from the very beginning, right? He is the light of men. He is the life of men. He's making this plain. The first thing is that we see that Jesus judges. The second thing we see is that he gives life. What do we mean by that? To be born again. This is the same life he was talking to John uh, in John 3 to Nicodemus about. That when we believe on Jesus now, we get life now in him. This eternal life starts now, none of this business that we believe and that'll have a bearing on us one day. If we believe in Jesus Christ, right now we become sons of the living God, right? This is what he talked about in chapter one. All of those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So now we are born again into this new family. We become people that when they say, why do you live the way that you live? We become people whose testimony should be, I only can do what I see my father doing. I've been connected vitally to the living God through Jesus Christ. I've been given life eternal now. So now it's a valid question. You say, okay, but you're talking about eternal life. What do you mean? What do you mean by eternal life? Life that never ceases. That you are following a God. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, he tells us. Okay, so when we hear about eternal life, we're going like, okay, well, you believe in eternal life. That's great, but people die. How does that work? So we believe on Jesus, and what happens? Well, he gives us one more thing that results from being connected to the Father is he gives judgment, he gives life, and he gives specifically resurrection. Resurrection. Look at verse 29. And 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Man, did I mention Jesus isn't playing around? Okay, so again, we could ask a good, and some of these simple questions are good questions. What do we mean by resurrection? What we mean by resurrection is dead people coming alive again, not just spiritually, physically, actually. 
1 Corinthians 15, if you want to do some more study on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 literally says, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we of all men are to be pitied because the resurrection of Jesus becomes a key for us to understand what our life will look like. We are given resurrection life in Jesus. So when we talk about life eternal, we mean literally your bodies will be buried in the ground and then there will come a day where Jesus resurrects your bodies to be reunited to your souls, and you will live in those bodies forever. Here's why I say that. We live in this age, and this has always been the case in the kingdoms of the world, where they say, come on, guys. Resurrection? What is this like? The walking dead? Like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Listen, there are people who want to try and convince us that as good, reasonable people, we won't believe in an actual, literal body, bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's just silly. The confession of the church from the beginning, the confession of Christ from the beginning was that you will tear down the temple of the body of Jesus. This is chapter two of John. And what's going to happen? He will be resurrected actually from the dead and live new life. We believe in an actual bodily resurrection of Jesus and our people, because we believe in Jesus, who ourselves will also be resurrected. This is the result of the good news of the gospel. When we are bound to the living God by faith in Christ, the end result of that is that you will be resurrected. Do you believe that, church? Yes, it's strange. And it's beautiful. Did I mention that he disrupts our way of thinking and doing things? You are not going to be a disembodied spirit forever. You are going to be resurrected in the actual body and you will live out eternity in flesh and blood. Did you know that, church? Man, that's wild. And he says it right here. And now he a little note here about verse 29. He says, now this is not about good works and earning your salvation. He says, come out. Um, when, he, when, he, when they hear his word, they'll come out of the tombs who have done good to the resurrection and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here's what this is talking about. This, this is why he's emphasizing, I can only do what I see my father doing. Listen, when you are born again and the spirit of God lives in you and you are united to the living God, the idea is, is that as you are playing on the playground, as you are at your office, as you are living and living out your life, people would observe what you're doing and you would be somebody who bears witness that says, I can only do as I see my father doing. Here's the thing. My children are ambassadors for my family. And whether I like it or not, whether I think it's fair or not, my children will live out the things that I have done to them and taught to them. And they will testify with their lives and with their words, the kind of home that they're a part of. You may not think that's fair. You may not like that. Frankly, it doesn't really matter. That's how it works. God designs these parables into our life so that way when we see these kids who are living and saying and doing things, we're wondering about, the, 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 it's a good and right question. You go, man, what kind of environment are they in that that is normal to them? Yeah, it makes me, makes me go, golly. Like, what kind of things are my kids saying? How are they like when I'm not around? All of that is metaphor, parable, illustration that God builds into creation so that we can go, and that's what it's like to be in the household of God. That when I sin against you, I know that my father really loves you dearly. 
And he wants me to apologize. He wants me to repent. He wants me to ask for forgiveness because you are dear to him. And I know that he loves you. And because he's my father, when I sin and I sin and I sin, I realize that I'm causing damage to my kingdom family and I need to repent. I need to turn. I need to seek your good. And I can only do as I see my father doing. That's who we are to be in the kingdom. That's what he's inviting us into. Okay, so we have the illustration of the healing of the pool, the explanation, right, that Jesus gives judgment, Jesus gives life, Jesus gives resurrection. There's also a warning. Again, this is why we preach the text, right? Like, I'm not making this stuff up. It's all in here. Hop down to verse 39. I wish I could preach every word of this text, but we're, we have to kind of take a representative summary sections here. We get a warning. Here we go. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Man. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not Seek the glory that comes from the only God. We'll stop right there. Okay, strange, strange warning about glory seeking. Here's what this means, church. And this has been true. Look, this is, Jesus said these words. This has been true in all of human history. There is something undeniable and something so, like, just so appealing that just draws me in that I want you to like me. I want you to accept me. I want you to come and hear sermons and be like, wow, he is so smart. He's so brilliant. He's so handsome. All that hair. Oh, he, oh, that's so great. He is so great. Right? Like, I want to stand up here and have you guys be like, oh, man, he's so, so funny and smart. Like, I want you to like me so bad. Right? I want glory from you. I want acceptance from you. I want it. Right? We all do. We, we meet someone and we want their approval and we will do most anything to get it. And here's what's happening and has happened in all of human history. All of human history. It is much easier for me to live for your approval than to live for God's. Because I can listen to your subtext. I can listen to what you're talking about and I can learn what I need to say for you to go, okay, yeah, yeah, you're good. You're not one of those terrible people that believes like weird things like the Bible. You're not one of those weird wacko Christians that talks about weird crap like being born again. Oh, thank the Lord. You're not one of those weirdos. And I can learn the right things to say and not say to get your approval. And what Jesus says here is, guys, it is so hard not to live for the glory of men because it feels really good when someone walks up and goes, man, you're really doing it. Good job. You got my approval. I'll vote for you. Man. Because when we're doing what God wants us to do, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes we're rejected. Sometimes it's embarrassing. Sometimes you get eye rolls. Sometimes people think, you're a moron, dude. A resurrection? What are you talking about? Come on, man. We got Marvel comics. We got Nikes. We got the NBA. Like, there's way cooler and funner things. Like, just, just, just ditch it, dude. It is so 
hard not to live for the approval of men. And so what he says is, is that you have sought the approval of men and because you have sought it so intensely, you actually have completely lost what it means to live under God's care and in union with him. You have no idea what that actually means. So the warning is, do not live for the approval of men. Another way of saying this is we better watch out about all the cultural fads that come down the pipeline. And there's so many examples that I could use. Christian nationalism, right? Picking our own gender. The scriptures are clear that God decides things. He gives us things like genders. He gives us things like marriage that have a specific way that that's defined because God's good, not because he's trying to keep us from good. And will we trust him? When he says life comes through the blood of Jesus, that the resurrection is promised to us who believe upon the name and life of Jesus, do we believe that or do we have to go, well, I don't know. And the warning is be careful about singing the most popular new song because the song of the gospel never ages and it never changes. And when Jesus shows up, he brings life and that life by design disrupts. If you are sitting here and you say, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, it doesn't really change much about my day to day. What Jesus are you following? Because there's a Jesus that is in our time. Did you notice that in this little last section I read where it says, you're reading the scriptures and yet you do not recognize me when I come? Did you, did you see that? These guys are reading the Bible. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Whoa, I thought, I thought, we, I thought the Bible was a good thing. Even the scriptures can be twisted for our own ends. When Jesus comes, he brings life. But if that life is not disruptive to your ways, to your preferences, then I'm not sure you've met the real Jesus. Hear me, church. As we believe upon Christ and are reconciled to the living God, we become people who live in a foreign way. That when they watch us playing on the soccer field and climbing around on this metaphorical jungle gym and they see us living, they're going to go, huh, that kid's a little bit weird. He's different than the other kids. He clearly has some other metric he's living his life by, huh? I wonder who his father is, right? And that we would be people who go, can I tell you about him? Can I tell you about how good my father is? And about the wonderful, beautiful, disruptive life that he brings that comes only through Jesus Christ. That is who we are. And church, as we go and as we march in this age that we live in, we're going to need to lock arms because we will be mocked and we will be hated by some as we hold on to the beautiful truths of the word of God, as we try and lovingly, sacrificially live out being followers of Jesus, we will be hated. Man, Jesus was, these guys are trying to kill him because he healed a guy. Oh, that that would be our testimony. That we would bring life and people would go, man, I can't stand that guy. He brings life everywhere he goes. Huh. All right, well, if you're wrestling with that, welcome to the club. Um, we do small groups. 
Because some of this you're going like, man, like that sounds hard. Amen. That's why we sit in small groups, we sit in circles and we go, look, what in the world does resurrection look like? That's a great discussion question. Man, what's it look like to not buy into the narratives of the world? Great, great question. Let's talk about that. Get in a small group so you can do, do life on life with each other. Because listen, this age that we're in, it's, it's not going to make it any easier for us. It's going to get weird at times. We will find ourselves on the wrong side of the law potentially at times. We're not affirming the right thing, right? Man, we're tricky. And we're, let's do it together. I need you guys, right? And you need me to do, to do this together in the kingdom. Let's pray and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You disrupt us. Like loving fathers do, you see us at play, damaging ourselves, damaging others. And as a good father does, you disrupt our sin and our death. And you come in and you offer us something that we weren't looking for because you're good. Lord, would you help us with humility, even with fear and trembling, to turn to you, to cry out to you and say, Lord, I want this life that you're offering. I don't fully know what it looks like. Lord, would you teach me? That's what we're doing. God, would you come? Would you disrupt our eternities? Resurrect us from the dead, that we would be men and women thousands upon thousands of years from now, who are singing your praises because you disrupted our ways and gave us your own. Lord, help us to walk in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.